thanks very much for, for coming out. This is this is week five in the OTJR seminar series, and I, I, it's a, a real privilege, I think, to have a presentation this evening on a country that definitely gets neglected in transitional justice discussions, namely Afghanistan. And uh, it's a real privilege for OTJR to have uh, Emily uh, Winterbotham with us here. Emily's a, a senior researcher in transitional justice at the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit. Uh, she's based in Kabul, so we were very glad to kind of grab her on a swing back through the UK. Uh, Emily's got an MSc in Global Politics from LSE. Uh, she's formerly conducted a great deal of research on transitional justice in Bosnia, um, amongst other places, and she's formerly been an editor of Global Radio News, uh, based in London as well. So Emily's worn many hats at many times, um, but she's going to speak to us this evening on the topic that you see here, Legacies of Conflict. Um, I have to remember what your subtitle is now, Healing Complexes and Moving Forwards in Afghanistan. Um, Emily, it's great to have you here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, thanks all for coming. Just before I start the main body of the presentation, I wanted to share with you a story which I think captures some of the challenges facing Afghanistan today and the challenges facing implementation of transitional justice in Afghanistan in the current period. On the screen behind, in fact, yeah, it is showing up. Um, this is a picture of a road construction project which is ongoing in one of the provinces of Afghanistan called Bamiyan. In the process of constructing this road, mass graves, which lie all along the road, believed to date from the Taliban era and also from the communist era, are being destroyed. We ran into two human rights activists in Bamiyan when we were conducting research there, who described literally having to get out of cars, collect pieces of skeleton together, and rebury graves, marking them with white flags. There is no official policy on mass graves in Afghanistan. In cases like this, all you can literally do is go to the local governor, go to the local police, go to the construction company, and try and raise awareness of the significance of protecting these sites. I think this captures the challenge facing Afghanistan. Afghanistan has to move forward, it has to progress, it has to move towards peace, but in the process, it needs to protect its past. So for the last two and a bit years, I've been conducting an in-depth qualitative research project in specific Afghan communities, trying to gain information about the legacies and impact of conflict in those areas, to explore what community members want in terms of justice, peace and reconciliation, and to try and identify mechanisms and processes that can help communities move forward. And this includes allowing space for previously unimagined ideas and locating transitional justice mechanisms in a specific Afghan context, including taking into account the role that an Islamic framework might play, and allowing for ways forward such as simply forgetting the past. What we then want to do is ensure that policymakers are informed of what ordinary Afghans want in regards to transitional justice. So research has taken place in three, three provinces, Bamiyan, Kabul, and Ghazni, a rural and urban site in each province. And this was designed to capture the different intensities of the conflict and include as many ethnic voices as possible. So the main basis of the presentation today um, is based on what people have told us in these communities. It is their voices, it is their desires and their aims that I will be presenting. So the transitional justice context. Despite the scale and length of the conflict, there has been no accountability between any phases of the war. 
Instead, what we've seen is arguments of peace before justice dominating. And this has allowed alleged perpetrators of human rights abuses to retain and regain positions of power. This has actually also been legalized um, in an amnesty law called the Amnesty National Reconciliation and Stability Law. This has affected the way Afghanistan looks today. People we spoke to discussed how it didn't only affect individual healing, but it affected the development of peace and, and security in the country. In Ghazni province, um, we were told, literally by every single person we interviewed, that the presence of human rights violators in government was delegitimizing government's efforts and was singled out as the key reason for the lack of faith in the government. So we also have deteriorated security. Security is the primary concern for every single Afghan interviewed, and every single idea, process, mechanism for ways forward are assessed against the implications for security. There's also an overall lack of trust in the Afghan government. It's widely perceived as corrupt, impunity affects it, it's also perceived as weak. Um, and this is actually what Abdul Karim was talking about in the quote. This is coupled with weak justice structures. Afghans feel that there is a lack of access to formal justice. And what this means is that the vast majority of both civil and criminal cases are being solved outside the formal courts, either within the community through dispute resolution or by the Taliban. And this is what we were told uh, by one female respondent in a rural area in Ghazni. I would argue that transitional justice is slipping off the political agenda without reasonable justification. Dealing with impunity doesn't only involve dealing with the past, but dealing with the present and individuals who continue to commit violations. So in this context, what can be done? We've looked at a range of different processes throughout the course of our research, and I'll take you through each one. First of all, criminal justice. Um, the most sort of automatic response when you ask people about what they want is we want punishment. And this is typically perceived as coming through formal justice structures led by the government. This is based on a number of understandings. Firstly, Islamic and Sharia law stipulate designated punishments for certain crimes. If you kill someone, you should be hung. If you commit theft, your hand should be chopped off. Criminal justice was also seen as, as serving the combined goal of punishing those who are guilty whilst providing vindication for victims. People typically explain this in terms of upholding rights or taking back rights, which were perceived to have a healing effect. People told us that they needed to, um, their okdar, their complex, to be healed, or their delishanaragakuna, they needed their hearts to be made cool. And all policies were assessed over the ability um, to implement those desires. Also, criminal justice was seen as playing a role in improving security. It was seen to help build respect for the rule of law and as a consequence, build government legitimacy. Potentially, it could also stop cycles of revenge. In different communities we worked in, we actually had specific examples of revenge killings in the current period stemming from wartime abuses. Um, so what people typically said is that although the right to revenge is actually um, has some sort of precedent in Afghanistan, that people actually didn't want to take personal revenge. They wanted the government to take revenge for them through formal justice processes. Um, problems, obviously, with this approach. 
It's largely unfeasible, given the current context. The justice system is weak. It can't handle normal criminal cases, let alone transitional justice cases. The government is also perceived as unwilling and unable. And this is coupled with deteriorating security. Any policy that could incite former warlords to take up arms against, against the government again or impede negotiations with the Taliban um, caused considerable objection among people. People were very concerned about this. And this is what Asadullah is talking about in the quote. The other main problem is Afghanistan's conflict in reality has been several conflicts with many different phases involving different ethnic groups, different factional groups, and it's very hard to identify who are perpetrators, who are victims, who are collaborators, and who are followers. Moreover, um, they, most Afghans we spoke to identified leaders as responsible for the conflict, either for triggering the conflict, perpetuating it, or for some of the worst abuses of human rights. However, which leaders were responsible were different to different groups. For example, in Ghazni province, we spoke to people in the rural community who, for them, the Taliban were jihadis, they were freedom fighters. You go to the city in Ghazni, and the Taliban are past and present um, perpetrators who need to be punished. So this kind of shows the difficulty and the challenges facing any sort of criminal justice approach when there's no clear designation of who is actually to blame. We looked at other modes of punishment. Um, firstly, international prosecutions. People, a significant proportion of people, were willing to accept the idea of having prosecutions abroad if um, the Afghan government was unwilling or unable. However, the legitimacy of the international community is very weak, particularly in the South and particularly in Ghazni, where we conducted research. So I would question whether people would actually desire an internationally-led trial. Moreover, if trials were to happen abroad, they have to be based in Islamic law. Um, the other real thing is, is that lack of interest from the international community. The International Criminal Court has been pretty quiet. Uh, they made a brief announcement in 2009 that we need to investigate crimes. Nothing has come out of that. And Afghanistan's main international donors also have little desire to investigate um, impunity and wartime atrocities in Afghanistan. So other policies which gained considerable attention were removing people from positions of power. It was widely recognized, particularly in cities, so in Ghazni City and in Kabul City, that people in positions of power had partly gained these positions as a result of their wartime activities. And as a consequence, um, they had lost legitimacy in the eyes of the people to rule. People also felt that perpetrators themselves should be made to co contribute towards compensation processes. It was widely felt that they had gained either in land or in money or in housing from their wartime activities, and so they should be made to pay that back. Obviously, the same types of problems um, that we see with criminal justice mechanisms are associated with moving people from positions of power and contributing towards compensation processes. Potentially, though, I do think that a process that removed several of the most culpable individuals from each ethnic group would perhaps be generally supported, but at the same time, you would need a comprehensive truth-seeking and fact-finding process 
to make clear guilt. So the other approach um, is literally the forgive and forget approach. And this is largely what is currently advocated by the Afghan government, as reflected in the amnesty law, and is also a key component of the Afghanistan Peace and Reintegration Program. This program was launched in July 2010, and what it basically does is offer economic incentives and opportunities, including vocational training and community projects, to try and incentivize the Taliban to give up arms. When I first heard about the plan and when I had a look through it, my first concern was what repercussions this would have for transitional justice. There is a high peace council which is involved in implementing this program and in negotiating peace with the Taliban. A significant proportion of those on this peace council are some of the worst offenders of human rights abuses. Consequently, many people we spoke to didn't feel that they actually had the necessary legitimacy to negotiate for peace. The other thing included in the APRP is there is a grievance resolution, so if someone has a problem, they can come forward and complain, but there is no retributive mechanisms available. So I would question whether the rights of Taliban victims are being sacrificed in order to gain cheap peace. The current approach um, in terms of the APRP and the amnesty law is also strongly contested by Afghans we interviewed. Generally, in cases of serious crimes, the right to forgive the perpetrator lies with the victims only. The government cannot forgive someone else's rights, and this is known as hukuk ulabad, the rights of God's servants. Not even God can forgive individual rights. However, people did decide that under certain conditions they might be willing to forget the past. What we see down the left-hand side of the diagram, people generally started out articulating desires and demands for punishment, typically through criminal justice processes. However, one of the aims of our research was to try and contextualize these demands, try and make people think what could realistically happen given the current environment. And what we actually saw was when you started questioning people about the implications for security or the feasibility of justice processes, people started to move towards an approach based on forgiveness or forgetting. There was a lot of despondency, so people typically said, we'll just forget, it's not possible. Um, what we then found, really, is that this didn't mean there was a genuine desire to forgive. There was actually a very limited number of people across all research communities who wanted to forgive perpetrators and instead, we chose to see this as a political decision to forget based on the contextual environment. Other factors that affected people's willingness or ability to forgive and forget um, were based on the security situation in the community. In Ghazni province, there is ever-increasing violence. So the notion of implementing a transitional justice process or punishing perpetrators caused less concern in that area. There was little fear that transitional justice would disrupt the security because it was already so bad. You go to Bamiyan and they've achieved a relative level of security and stability and they're desperate to preserve that fragile status quo. So they were actually the group that was most likely to change their mind and argue that we should just forget. Who people identified as perpetrators also played a role. In Ghazni, a lot of the perpetrators are in positions of power. The visibility of people, they can see them every day. And this keeps on demands for criminal justice. Again, going back to Bamiyan, key perpetrators were the Taliban. The Taliban's no longer in the area. They're fighting in the south. They're also being killed in that fight. So in essence, 
some of you know some form of recourse is actually happening, and so they were more willing to forget. Uh, we also found that some communities had attempted local forms of recourse to resolve. One of the rural areas we worked in in Carwell had actually implemented a process of inclusion and exclusion of certain people uh, that they felt they didn't want back in the community. And to some degree, this had therefore provided people with some form of healing. Ultimately, the problems with these, this kind of approach, will people give up their desires for justice when they're so strong? If security is re-established in Afghanistan, I would suggest that the demand for justice would come up again. Moreover, since forgiveness was actually limited, is um, a policy of forgetting sufficient to actually secure long-lasting peace? And is it right to sacrifice individual victims' rights in favor of peace? So what we looked at um, is that while policymakers might want to sweep everything under a rug, forget about the past, um, the legacy of impunity in Afghanistan is actually contributing towards ongoing insecurity. It's hindering governance and counterinsurgency efforts. And so I would suggest the past cannot simply be ignored. While the vast majority of people wanted to see perpetrators punished, the main priority was for peace. So are there other approaches which can provide some level of healing, some form of recompense, um, but not go as far as potentially divisive or dangerous criminal justice approaches? And I'll take you through those. People um, themselves described what role um, apologies and forgiveness could play. The idea that if a perpetrator came into your community and asked for forgiveness, admitted complicity, said they would change, what impact that would have, and people generally did feel they might be willing to forgive under that circumstance. That was also perceived as being able to heal relationships between victims and perpetrators, and also uh, help towards individual healing. Ultimately, the goal of this was reconciliation and peace. And this actually has some precedent in Afghanistan. Community-based dispute resolution is actually based on the concept of Islam, which means that peace and social cohesion are negotiated within the community rather than trying to attempt retribution. In Kabul, this was described as Tauba, which is literally a process of repentance. And in the quote uh, from Assad, this is actually him talking about a former communist perpetrator who came into the community and admitted his wrongs and was actually subsequently forgiven. Um, however, there are still problems with this approach, considering that the notion of forgiveness was rejected by a significant proportion of people, particularly people in Bamiyan and actually women. They, to them, the idea that they could actually forgive was inherently abhorrent, and perhaps this notion of forgiveness is unrealistic in this type of environment. Apologies were also perceived as meaningless. They have happened before. People explained how other people have come and apologized and then continue to commit violations. Moreover, blanket amnesty was rejected. People felt you could have apologies and forgiveness, but you have to attempt other processes too. You have to look at truth-seeking, you have to look at recording, and even some people felt that you should only forgive once um, people have actually been punished. Moreover, um, Islam and this notion of reconciliation is designed to main maintain community peace. 
it's not clear that if you try to apply that at the national level, whether actually some of the value and some of the meaning would be lost. So we also talk to people about processes of truth-seeking and documentation. Documentation in Afghanistan has largely been ad hoc, and there's been a vacuum. This has allowed perpetrators and former Mujahideen to promote self-serving visions of the past. Most notably, the amnesty law justified abuses um, as a result of glorifying the holy war that had been fought. Um, other people in the Afghan government actually deny any responsibility for past crimes, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Consequently, there was a widespread demand across all communities that the government launch investigations into what had happened in their area, and this would actually be a form of recognition by the government of Afghanistan. In itself, telling stories was sometimes perceived to be cathartic. We had a significant proportion of people who thanked us for coming to their area, who said they had never had anyone come and ask them what had happened to them before. And this actually uh, helped them to start to heal. People also wanted that if an investigation was to be launched, the government should be made aware of the extent of damage and loss, and this could potentially feed into compensation processes. People also felt that a clear line needed to be drawn between perpetrators and victims. People wanted to know which Mujahideen who had fought against the Russians were good, which ones had committed crimes. Once this truth had been collected, people felt this should be shared nationally and internationally so it could be learned from. This was particularly relevant for helping younger generations to prevent the same types of mistakes happening again. So there are, while the Afghan government might not have done anything, there are civil society processes which have been looking into documentation and truth-seeking. The Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission is actually a government body, but currently not funded by the government and typically acts as a civil society organization, has launched several different processes. One report they produced in 2005 was investigating people's demands for justice and most recently, they've looked into, or they've finished, a conflict mapping project. This has mapped violations in every single district of every single province in Afghanistan. Um, and what it's done, I've seen some parts of it, is stress the extent of violations, the commonality of experiences, which they feel means they can't, this, this past cannot be amnestied. Unfortunately, the release of this uh, report has been delayed. It's still not sure when it's going to pop up. They're concerned about the security environment and the implications this will have for their own organization and for the people who conducted the research. Other documentation efforts have been undertaken by the Afghanistan Justice Project, by Human Rights Watch, the infamous Bloodstained Hands report, which was produced in 2005. And people have looked at recording victim stories in newspapers and through radio programs. There's also a documentation database framework which is being led by USIP. And it's trying to bring together all the different documentation that exists in Afghanistan into a central center, which is actually going to be saved in DC. So it's secure and outside Afghanistan. And they want to look at potentially building a war crimes documentation center in Afghanistan. I just wanted to kind of bring up one group to 
pinpoint them. This is a theatre group who actually works, they travel around Afghanistan and they record victim stories using different theatre methods. And I've worked very closely with them. And some of their theatre plays, the way they present findings back, have been very powerful. There are still obviously problems with truth-seeking and documentation. Typically, when people talked about truth-seeking or talked about investigations, they perceived, um, they linked them with criminal justice processes. So they felt, felt like they would be giving evidence against people. And they were concerned that in the absence of a criminal justice process, the perpetrators would be free to take revenge against people who had provided evidence against them. Moreover, if people link documentation with criminal justice, this might increase demands for criminal justice mechanisms. People were therefore very concerned about the impact of what this would have on security. They didn't want to risk reigniting wartime tensions, triggering old, old tensions within a community or in the country. There was also a considerable sense of pointlessness. What is the point? Nothing is going to change. We're ignored. No one wants to implement anything here. What is the point of us even telling our story? Moreover, there is a notion of what is truth. In Ghazni province, some of the desires to record the past were based on people's wish to glorify the Mujahideen in their fight against the Russians. However, you go to Kabul city, and the notion of glorifying those people who were responsible for a devastating civil war was abhorrent to the vast majority of people interviewed. So what is truth in the eyes of different Afghan communities needs to be carefully deconstructed and managed to avoid reigniting tensions. Moreover, people felt that if the government was actually to lead um, investigation processes, this might just continue to provide self-serving visions of the past. And this is what Madia Sahib is talking about in this quote. <coughs> We looked at compensation and memorialization. Um, current memorialization efforts are basically focused on glorifying the Mujahideen. And there are a number of actual national holidays in Afghanistan, celebration of the Islamic Revolution in Afghanistan, Great Ahmad Masood Day, which moderate and reflect and make people think about the Mujahideen. However, everyone we spoke to among everyone, no one knew that there was a Victims' Day in Afghanistan. This was actually launched in 2006, and it was actually recognized by the government in 2006 and 2007. But since then, people um, have failed to acknowledge it, and it's obviously failed to become a meaningful event in Afghan lives. People therefore felt that if you were going to have memorialization processes, they needed to focus on the victims and the ordinary people, as opposed to the leaders of conflict. People felt that sites of atrocity or mass graves should be appropriate places for memorialization initiatives. And this is actually what we see here. This is a grave site which is marked in a rural area of Bamiyan, and people actually go there, pay their respects, and maintain this grave. Also, this placard. Um, is at the entrance to a valley in Bamiyan, and the names listed are Taliban victims with their names and ages beside them. Uh, if the Afghan government hasn't um, conducted any type of memorialization for victims, civil society has taken this burden on themselves. 
So this is an example uh, of a couple of memorialization efforts. The memorial is actually on, or it's at the site of a mass grave known to date from the communist time and believed to contain the bodies of around a thousand victims. The memorial was actually implemented and established in 2008 and then the following year the building around the bottom was inaugurated and that is Afghanistan's first war museum. Inside that war museum are pictures of people who have disappeared, pieces of cloth, evidence, weapons um, dating back from the different conflicts. There are obviously political problems still with memorialization. Given that there's been no comprehensive truth-seeking process and no examination of the causes and consequences of the conflict, various groups may contest memorialization processes. Why should communist victims be memorialized? What about Taliban victims? What about civil war victims? Um, to some people as well, the idea of memorialization was tainted. The fact that memorialization has existed to glorify the Mujahideen and the leaders means they don't want anything more to do with it. Also, key demands, really, when people discussed memorialization, what they wanted, they said things like, we'd like a school in the name of martyrs, we want a clinic in the name of victims. This suggests that actually the most pressing priority is development as opposed to memorialization. And there is a debate as to whether funding should be spent on memorialization as opposed to the most pressing concerns. Compensation was very popular in all communities. People felt that this could help repair the physical material and some of the emotional damages caused by war. And this would also be one way of the government of Afghanistan demonstrating that they recognized that people had suffered. Um, we talked about, I talked about earlier, the role of perpetrators. If we place perpetrators at the center of compensation processes, this would be one way providing some sort of accountability. And actually in Kabul, people did put compensation processes forward as an alternative to retributive measures. Uh, there are problems again with this approach. Compensation was generally perceived to be sufficient for material and financial loss, not for the death or disappearance of a loved one. And the fact actually that paying people might amount to putting a price on victims' lives meant that some people rejected compensation entirely. So just to kind of sum up, um, I've expressed you know, a lot of pros and cons with all the processes, but ultimately I feel that the underlying demands to different types of processes are that the government acknowledge people's suffering. Simply acknowledging it might be some way for Afghanistan to start moving forward and dealing with the past. All processes, therefore, were perceived against their ability to heal complexes and calm hearts' pain by upholding or taking back rights. And overall, there is a demand for security and for good governance. Immediate ways forward, I would actually suggest, is that the government of Afghanistan should acknowledge Victims Day. Symbolically acknowledging past suffering might be a place to start. There should also be a commitment to not allowing some of the worst perpetrators of human rights violations back into power, and this should be a key component in negotiations with the Taliban. We could explore the option of national apologies. Perhaps the government apologizing for previous regimes' atrocities might be one way to start. And in the meantime, civil society should continue their activity. So the final slide I have 
This is significant um, because this was an event which for the first time brought victims from around Afghanistan together to discuss the past and to identify ways forward. This is actually um, them commemorating victims who have disappeared or died, um, who are known to exist somewhere in mass graves near this prison in Puluchaki, near Kabul. And so I feel that unifying events like this, bringing people together, commemorating all victims, regardless of um, which regime they suffered in or which ethnic groups they belong to, need to be encouraged and need to be supported. Great, thanks, Emily.